Good morning, saints. Doesn't sound like I'm on there. There we go. I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me to John chapter 10 this morning. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21 will be our text this morning. And as you turn there, I want to remind you that in the preceding passage, Jesus has just healed a blind man. And the Pharisees and the Jewish authorities, they doubted the healing. They debated the outcome. And chapter 9 really shows us that the Pharisees are spiritually blind, although they claim to see. And we must remember that those who cannot spiritually see cannot spiritually shepherd. Those who cannot spiritually see cannot spiritually shepherd. In other words, the Jewish authorities are not merely spiritually blind, but they are also false shepherds. And therefore, those under their care are in dire need of a true shepherd. And that context is helpful for us as we read the text this morning. John 10, verses 1 through 21, I invite you to hear and receive the authoritative and inspired word of the triune God. He is the only true God, friends, and this is his word. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of stranger. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let us pray. 
Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise as we have already rehearsed this morning that you are good and you do good. And we see that most clearly in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for sending your only begotten Son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for living in our stead, for dying in our stead, for being raised to life, that we too have hope and assurance that we will as well. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for applying the work of Christ to us such that we can say we truly are children of God. Lord, it's our prayer this morning that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful, wonderful things from your word, that you would teach us, that you would guide us, that you would lead us, all for the purpose that we might be conformed into the image of your beloved Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We believe that the proclamation and receiving of your word is one of the many means by which you achieve that purpose. So we ask that you would do that this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 10 begins Jesus' last message to the general public in the Gospel of John. In chapters 8 and 9, we see this emphasis on the intense judicial conflict between Jesus and between the Jewish authorities. And up to now, the surmounting opposition against the Lord Jesus Christ has been almost palpable. Yet, we remember that the gospel has already declared that God the Father has given all judgment to the Son. We see this in John chapter 5, verse 22. And so therefore, as strong as this opposition against Jesus is, we must remember that Jesus is not the one who is on trial. Jesus, rather, is the judge. So regardless of time, regardless of place, it's good and right for us to remember that all people are under the jurisdiction of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, in our passage, the time for debate, the time for dialogue, the time for discussion is over. And at this moment, it is time for Jesus to stand up and to declare. And his declaration is oh so good, brothers, sisters, and friends. The main idea of our passage is that in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21, Jesus declares that all men, like sheep, have gone astray. You get that theme in Isaiah 53, verse 6. Yet he is the door for his sheep, and the shepherd for those who call upon him and for those whom he calls to himself. And I want to remind us before we get into the text itself, we need to note that Jesus' words are simultaneously an indictment against those who oppose him and an invitation to those who would join him. And so for us, nearly 2,000 years later, it's good for us to ponder the question, are we indicted or are we invited? Which class are you in, friend? 
Are you one who will continue in your opposition against the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you one who will hear and heed, or one who has already heard and heeded the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ? This is a question that each and every one of us would do well to ponder. And so let us consider this question as we work our way through the text. First, we're going to see the analogy or the illustration, if you will. If we're going to understand this text, we have to understand the analogy that's given in verses 1 through 5. Then we're going to see that Jesus is the door. We're going to see that Jesus is the good shepherd. And then we're going to see this interesting relationship between the Father and the Son. And lastly, we're going to see the result of it all. So let us begin with the analogy or the illustration Look with me first at verses 1 through 5, please. The Word of God reads, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the shepherd by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hears his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Obviously, this verse is describing to us a shepherding scenario. And the opening verse of this section provides really a literary shock for the reader. Notice that there is no introduction to Jesus' statement in chapter 10. There's no smooth transition from the end of chapter 9. Rather, Jesus authoritatively and seemingly abruptly burst onto the scene and says, Truly, truly, I say to you. This phrase provides emphasis so as to say, Listen, for what I'm about to say is of utmost importance. And what follows is an illustration about shepherding. And although Jesus' words themselves burst on the scene without any formal introduction, really the theme of chapter 9 provides introduction enough. The religious leaders of Israel were to be shepherds of the people. They were to be shepherding the sheep. Yet chapter 9 portrayed the religious leaders as being abusive to those who had great need. The blind beggar of chapter 9, he needed a shepherd he needed someone to care for his soul, but what he had was not. So now Jesus addresses the problem at hand. He gives this description that the person who does not enter into the sheepfold or the courtyard through the door but gets into it another way, that person is a thief or a robber, he says in verse 1. The term sheepfold is a word that depicts really a private, family, enclosed courtyard. Such a courtyard would only have one main point of entry, the door or the gate. So therefore, if anyone would try to enter in any other way, it is easy to identify that person as a thief or a robber. But the person who enters through that door person who enters through that gate, that person is the shepherd of the sheep in that courtyard. We have two figures at this point. We have the thief who enters negatively and the shepherd 
who enters positively. And the contrast between these two figures is intentional and clear in John's gospel. The, see, the thief seeks to go where he does not belong to take what he does not own. On the contrary, the shepherd both owns the courtyard and the sheep within. In other words, the shepherd is the rightful owner and has sovereign authority over both the courtyard and the sheep. Now we introduce to a third character. Verse 3 tells us that the gatekeeper opens the gate to the shepherd. So at nighttime, a hired doorkeeper would be there outside of the gate to guard the door to prevent thieves or wild animals from coming in to harm the sheep. And when the shepherd approaches, you know what the gatekeeper doesn't do? He doesn't scratch his head and say, hey, I've never seen this guy before. For the shepherd is the one who hired the gatekeeper. So the shepherd approaches, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. I find it interesting, note this, that the gatekeeper recognizes the shepherd, but the sheep also recognize the shepherd. He calls them out by name, and he leads them out. The sheep not only hear but the implication is that they recognize the voice of their shepherd. We have to pause here for a moment and just be comforted, saints. And just be comforted that the, the shepherd calls his sheep by name. He knows them in, intimately and individually. The shepherd is portrayed as calling his own sheep with emphasis on the fact that he possesses these sheep. Notice that there is a measure of this intimacy between the shepherd and the sheep in that he knows them by name and they know his voice. Why? Why is the question? Because the shepherd is the one who supplies the needs and cares for and tends to and feeds the sheep. I didn't grow up on a sheep farm. Rather, I grew up in an apartment complex in the suburbs of Columbus, Ohio. But we still get this concept, really, regardless of where you grew up. The rule in my household was that I needed to be inside my house when the street lights were on. And we neighborhood boys, sometimes, we would get into a game of basketball, a game of tag, we'd be running around. And guess what would happen? The street lights would come on, and your boy, Pastor Kenny Kaufman, would not be at home. And so what would we do? Well, if we waited too long, we'd hear names being called out. Jonathan, Edward, Kenny. When my mom called my name, I knew it was my mom. Not because she said my name, but rather because I knew her voice. There could be another parent who would call my name, and I would know that that was not my mom. It is my mom's voice, not just her words, that helped me to identify who she was. Just as a young boy knows the call of his mother, so a sheep knows the voice of its shepherd. The shepherd would call his sheep, and he would lead them out. The shepherd would often call these sheep and lead them out of the courtyard to do what? To graze on new and fresh pasture. He would lead them to care for their needs, to provide 
for their needs. And after the shepherd brought out all of his own, he would go in front of them. And the sheep would do what? They would follow. They would follow him, saints. Precisely because they knew the voice of their shepherd. Notice that each of the sheep and all of the sheep are fo- all of the sheep are following the shepherd after having been brought out. There's an interesting play on words here, I believe. The Greek word translated brought out here in chapter 10, verse 4, is the same word translated cast out in chapter 9, verse 34. Remember, the blind man was cast out of the synagogue. Now the shepherd brings out the sheep. This provides a contrast between the shepherd and the illustration that we're in the middle of and the Jewish leadership, which seems to coincide with the thief and the robber. Edward Klink notes this. He says, the contrast between the shepherd and the thief and robber is clear. One leads the sheep to the, in the direction that they should go, while, others, while the other dismisses the sheep for his own selfish purposes. Nevertheless, the shepherd remains with his sheep and directs them by his voice. Again, I can't overemphasize the fact that the sheep follow because they know the shepherd's voice. And perhaps at this point, we begin to remember the words of Jesus himself earlier in the gospel. In chapter 6, verse 37, remember that Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That same word once again. Notice that the sheep will not just follow anyone. The sheep will never follow a stranger. Rather, they flee from the stranger. And why is that the case? Verse 5 simply tells us because they do not know the voice of strangers. It's not the commands of the strangers that causes them to flee. Rather, it's that they don't recognize the voice of the stranger. The continued contrast between the shepherd and others serves one primary purpose, which is to show that the shepherd of the sheep can be distinguished from others by the flock. The shepherd of the sheep can be distinguished from others by the flock. In other words, the sheep hear and know the voice of their shepherd over against those who may try to deceive them, over against those who may try to persuade them in another direction. The sheep do not know the voice of strangers, and therefore the sheep will not remain with strangers. On the contrary, the sheep know the voice of their shepherd, and so therefore the sheep will remain with their shepherd This is the analogy, this is the illustration, if you will, that Jesus employs to indict those who are opposed to him. But John gives us significant information in verse 6. Look with me there. He says, This figure of speech used with them, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. And it's probably not so much so that his listeners did not understand the reality of shepherds and sheep in their own culture. They would have certainly understood understood the local relationship between a shepherd and his sheep. Rather, the spiritual lesson 
is being missed by the Jewish leadership who are blind to see the true shepherd. So Jesus is not going to stop there. He's going to go on and he is going to say two of the famous I am statements. First, he says, I am the door, which brings us to the door in verses 7 through 10. Look with me there, please, beginning in verse 7. Seemingly as a result of them not understanding, Jesus says, So, again saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Here what we find is the third formal I am statement in the book of John. We've already seen I am the bread of life. We've already seen I am the light of the world. And here we have I am the door. And once again, we have the emphatic, truly, truly, I say to you, which is followed by, I am the door of the sheep. And just as the analogy shows that there is only one access point for the sheep, now Jesus makes it explicit that he is the access point for his sheep. Jesus acknowledges that others went before him, but he calls them what? Thieves and robbers. And he says that the sheep did not listen to them. In other words, what he's saying is, I am absolutely and exclusively the access point for my sheep. That there is no other, that there is no equal, that there is no one close, that there is no one above, but that I alone am the absolute and exclusive access point for my sheep. All other supposed entry points are insufficient. Jesus Christ alone is the door for a sheep. Okay, we get it. Jesus Christ is the access point, but the access point to what? But the access point to what? Let's continue in verse 9. He tells us, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Hear what Jesus does? He, doubled down, he doubles down. He says again, I am the door. And then he goes on to say, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. That is a massive claim, friends. A massive claim. If that you enter through him, you'll be saved and you'll have this freedom to go in and out and find pasture. He's making the argument that he is the access point to salvation. He is the access point to a right relationship with God. Jesus is that entry point. He is that door unto salvation is what he's saying. And as a matter of fact, Jesus will later say something somewhat similar. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I want to point out that this salvation that he speaks of is not just a future salvation. It's not just a spiritual salvation. Rather, this salvation is depicted as a salvation with 
many, many, many benefits, both present benefits and future benefits. Christ's sheep are, as it says here, able to go in and out freely to find pasture, which speaks of the provision that Christ provides if they are to enter through him. Well, the thief comes to kill and to steal and to destroy. Christ came that his sheep may have what? Life and have it abundantly. What a statement. We have to pause here because this is a statement that gets used and abused over and over and over again. You and I have had interactions with people who will cite this verse that they'll rip it out of context. And Jesus came that I might have life and life abundantly. Well, what does that mean is the question. Well, it is true that Christ came to his sheep that they may have abundant life. It is not true that an abundant life means health and wealth and prosperity and worldly pleasures. That's not what an abundant life is, saints and friends. Rather, it means that Christ himself gives life its meaning. That Christ himself gives life its meaning, and there are benefits of following Christ that far outweigh health, wealth, and prosperity. Brothers and sisters, Christ's sheep follow him. That's the connection point that we have to see here. And when he talks about this abundant life, it's in the context of sheep following their shepherd. And so the abundant life has to be something likened to us following Christ. Following someone means being their disciple. Christ says that I am the door that allows his sheep to go to and fro throughout the pasture. And Christ says that he came to give his life and to give his sheep life and have abundant life. The abundant life means that Christ, or the abundant life that Christ gives to his sheep is an experiential overflow of life, which is spiritually enabled and which results in the ability for the very first time, friends, to rightly relate to God, to right, rightly relate to self, and to rightly relate to others. We know from Genesis that we are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God, and we are made for relationship. Yes, there are other things, but we are made for relationship. And as we come to Christ and follow Christ, we are enabled to increasingly have right relationship with God and others. And we look forward to the day in which we will have perfect relationship with God and with one another. And we remember that Christ is the image of the invisible God and that we are being conformed into the image of Christ himself. And so for us to have this abundant life, it's primarily about us and God and us and others, not us and material objects. Following Christ results in benefits that will outlast this life as we know it now. Do you believe that, church? That following Christ in your day-to-day task, in your menial, Monday, rote things, whether it's doing the dishes, whether it's going to work every day, whatever it is, that being faithful to Christ in those small things and submitting to his word in whatever atmosphere and whatever circumstance it is far outweighs anything else that this world has to offer. 
I pray we believe that. And that we believe it more and more and more. Because if you're anything like me, I'll be, I'll be honest with you, I get tempted and tried. And it's easy on a Sunday morning while the word of God is being proclaimed to say, yes, amen, pastor, preach. But Tuesday morning, you're going to wake up. And you're going to be tempted. Remember that then. That Christ offers us far more than anything that this world has to offer. That being faithful to him is indeed the abundant life. And when we do so, there is an overwhelming sense of joy. There are benefits of following Christ that will outlast this life as we know it now. Yet, yet the abundant life that Christ gives now is a down payment to the one to come. Here's, here's my dilemma here. Why am I spending so much time on this abundant life stuff? Let me tell you. Because this is what I think sometimes. I think sometimes the church says, heaven's going to be great. I just have to be bored and press on until I get there. But that's a lie from the pit of hell. That, that's not what the Bible teaches. We have eternal life now that, yes, goes into eternity, but we have true, real, spiritual, rich life such that we should be the most joyous people on the face of the earth. And so when Jesus says, I came to give abundant life, that, that his sheep might have abundant life uh, or life abundantly, he's not just talking about the future. He's talking about in the here and now as a down payment and in the future and it'll only be better then. And so that's why I'm spending so much time on this. Let me just talk a little bit about some of those benefits. Dr. Mark Zakevich wrote a wonderful little book on the, on the benefits of discipleship, specifically in the Gospel of John. And what I want to do is I want to share with you his list of the benefits of discipleship in the Gospel of John, because I believe it helps us to grasp the abundant life that there is in Christ. I think it will encourage us to realize these things and to give thanks for these things and to dig deeper and to press in on these things. And I want you to notice as we work our way through this list that there are some benefits that we experience today, while there are still others that we will await. So quickly, first benefit is this, is life. Life or eternal life. We see this in passages maybe most famously as John chapter 3. We also have resurrection. We await the resurrection. We see this in John 8, 51 through 53. We have family, that we are part of the family of God. That is something that we experience now that is a benefit of following Jesus. Salvation. We will not perish. That's a promise that we can rejoice in right now. That when you give in, when you sin, when you fall short, because you're in Christ, your worry doesn't have to be, I'm going to perish. Rather, it's the love of Christ, it's the person and work of Christ that encourages us to repent and to bear fruit. No judgment for those who are in Christ. We avoid God's wrath. See that in chapter 3, verse 36. We abide or we remain or we walk in the light and we do not remain in the darkness. For those who follow Christ, they abide with the Father and the Son. Present. For those who follow Christ, there is this future presence with Jesus. 
We await. For those who follow Christ, there's the comforter or the paraclete. We'll really get into that in chapter 14 and 16. For those who follow Christ, we benefit having freedom from sin. Freedom from sin. Why? Because we saw in chapter 8 that the truth sets us free. We have protection if we follow Christ. We have knowledge, true, genuine knowledge, not exhaustive knowledge, but true knowledge of the Father and the Son. We have honor from the Father. Isn't that crazy to think about? Because Christ chose me, as we've already talked about, I'm somehow honored by the Father. But I had nothing to do with it. Glory be to God. Jesus talks about his followers, those who follow him, will do greater works. And we'll get to that in chapter 14. We have answered requests. For those who follow Christ and cry out to the Father, he answers our prayers. How does that work with the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man? I'll tell you when I figure it out, which will not be this side of heaven. But it's what the word declares. And so we get on our knees and we pray. We have peace. We have joy. We have fruit. We have friendship with God and therefore with one another. We have unity. We have love. We have glory. Brothers and sisters, he came to give us life and life abundantly. And I would offer that there is no better life. There is no better life than simply being faithful to follow Christ. There's nothing better. Nothing better. And I know that there are some people in here, I'm not, I'm not as naive as I look, all right? I know that there are some people in here right now who are wrestling with worldly temptations. I know it. There are people like, yeah, but, but I just, can I, can I give in to that a little bit? Or, or yeah, but that looks really good. Maybe when I get a little bit older, I'll, I'll be fully committed. I'm telling you, both by experience, which has no authority, but on the authority of the word of God, there is no better life than simply following Jesus. All this is to say that Jesus is the door into salvation. And that salvation is a salvation that provides an abundant life both here and now and for all eternity. But Jesus is not only the door, he also says that he's the good shepherd. Look with me at verses 11 through 16. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Here we find the fourth 
formal I am statement in the book of John. And I love what Edward Klink notes about the uniqueness of Jesus's metaphors. On one hand, he just said he's the door. On the other hand, he just said he's the shepherd. Which is he? Is he the door or is he the shepherd? I love this. Klink says, never before has one person been a door and a shepherd. But never before had the word become flesh. The utter uniqueness of our Lord. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of the divine shepherd in Psalm 23. We know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Jesus is that shepherd. But Jesus Christ is also the long-awaited divine shepherd that the prophet spoke of when he penned Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 15, which says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. Jesus Christ is the great shepherd of Hebrews chapter 13. Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd of 1 Peter chapter 5. Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is the shepherd par excellence for many reasons, but this text emphasizes one reason. And that reason is because he lays down his life for his sheep. Because he lays down his life for the sheep. Unlike a hired hand, who is primarily interested in the self-preservation such that when the precise moment arises when he is needed, he flees in order to save himself, which results in the destruction of the sheep. Jesus isn't that shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd who knows his own and whom his own know. The knowledge between the shepherd and the sheep is somewhat astounding. And the reason why is because here it's likened to knowledge between God the Father and God the Son. And it is capped with the statement, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I find so much comfort from this simple phrase. Disciple of Christ, listen to my words. Jesus Christ is responsible for your ultimate well-being. Jesus Christ is responsible for your ultimate well-being. Fear is gone. Worry out of here. If Jesus Christ is responsible for my ultimate well-being, for his sheep's ultimate well-being, then I can walk in any circumstance. Just as the psalmist says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Take heart, saints. In the, in the pastoral prayer, we just mentioned that there are a number of people going through genuine hardship. There are a lot of people who weren't mentioned in the prayer who are going through genuine hardship. 
take heart in this simple reality that Jesus Christ is responsible for your well-being, and let me add to that, and is able to provide your well-being. If Jesus lived for you, if Jesus died for you, then tell me why Jesus will not hold you in his hand until he brings you home. Silence is the only thing that's appropriate. You can't tell me, because he will. If a lowly shepherd who is responsible for his sheep will lay down his life for them, how much more confidence are we to have when we realize that the good shepherd, that the great shepherd, that the chief shepherd laid down his life in your stead? Perhaps you may have doubts. Perhaps you may be thinking that Jesus said these things a long time ago. Perhaps you may be thinking, yeah, well, Jesus was just thinking about his first century disciples who were there with him. How am I to know that this sheep of Christ for whom he laid down his life stuff is applicable to me? Well, we'll continue in the text. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must, I must, I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Historical context is important when we study our Bibles. Jesus is well aware of that. We remember earlier from this very same gospel in the prologue that he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so we understand that the gospel was first offered to the nation of Israel and that the majority of the nation did not believe, but that a remnant did. We understand that this was the first sheepfold, but we also understand that there is another sheepfold, which is comprised of Gentiles. Jesus will tell his Jewish disciples to do what? To make disciples of all nations. To make disciples of all nations. John tells us in the book of Revelation that Jesus ransomed people for God by his blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. Why? Why? Because Jesus said right here, In John chapter 10, I must bring them also, referring to those who are not part of the first sheepfold, the Jews. He speaks of Gentiles. And notice what he says, and they will listen to my voice. And they will listen to my voice. The result is that there is one people of God with one shepherd, Jesus Christ. So if Jesus said that he must bring in his sheep, whom he laid down his life for, then the question is, have you been brought in? He says, I must bring in my sheep. I have other sheep who are not of this sheepfold. And just so you guys know, like Jesus didn't die and snap his finger and the gospel was proclaimed all over the earth. It took quite some time such that it continues today. 
The gospel is preached, and through the proclamation of the gospel, his sheep do one thing, and they all do it in the same way. By the Spirit of God, they hear the voice of Jesus, and they respond appropriately. Why does this text, why do these things that Jesus said 2,000 years ago still apply? Because he's the sovereign Lord of the world who has sheep scattered all over the world, and he says that he must bring them in. And he's been in the business of doing that. And he explicitly says, they will listen to my voice. Have you heard? Have you heard the voice of the shepherd? Have you recognized that it's not just an old book that's outdated? That is not just some mythical stuff that people made up, but by the Spirit of God have you recognized the voice of Jesus in the text of Scripture? And have you heeded? Have you listened? Have you obeyed? Have you come to Jesus? I pray that you have. Well, we continue. Verses 17 and 18, notice what Jesus says here. Note this relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus continues and he says, For this reason the Father loves me. Why? Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Four times in our passage, Jesus speaks of voluntarily laying down his life. We saw it in verse 11, we saw it in verse 14, and now we see it two times, verse 17 and verse 18. Also, two times in this text, Jesus predicts his resurrection. We see it in verse 17 and we see it in verse 18. And just as an aside, oftentimes skeptics say things like this. The death of Jesus Christ is nothing other than cosmic child abuse. How do you Christians believe that a father can crush his own son? This is the text you take them to. This is the text you take them to. The Lord Jesus Christ is not a pawn in history. Rather, the relationship between the father and the son, the authority that the father gives the son, allows Jesus to proclaim in our text that he has authority that he voluntarily lays down his life and he has authority to take it up again. So yes, the Father raised Jesus from the grave. Yes, the Spirit raised Jesus from the grave. And yes, Jesus raised Jesus from the grave. Guess why? Because our triune God is always working in unison. The persons of the Godhead are always working in unison with one another. He willingly lays down his life. He voluntarily lays down his life such that his sheep such that his sheep can have life and have it abundantly. Jesus says the Father has a special love for the Son because of his sacrificial obedience to the Father's will, which results in bringing about fruition to what God had foreordained. There would be one flock, there'd be one shepherd. It's not a new idea. Before the foundations of the earth, the Lord has this planned. And through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, he accomplishes it such that 
what God had set out, the Son accomplishes and the Spirit applies to the sheep. And we say, wow, how marvelous, how wonderful, how great is our God. It is through the person and work of Jesus Christ that God's plan for redemption is mediated, brothers and sisters, such that Jesus says, for this reason, the Father loves me. And really, the details of that plan of redemption is twofold. It's multifaceted, of course, but in our text, it's twofold. The laying down of life and the taking up of life. The laying down of life and the taking up of life. It is the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ's life. And note this, friends. Holding on to the historicity of the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is a matter of hearing Christ's voice. It's a matter of hearing Christ's voice. If you say, oh, well, not sure about those details, but yeah, Jesus was a good guy. He showed us some kind of way to love others, but there's no really penal substitutionary atonement. Nothing was really accomplished at the cross. You haven't heard the voice of Christ. The historicity of his life, death, and resurrection is a matter of hearing his voice. Let me read this long quote to you as I think it's overwhelmingly helpful and I can't say it any better. Edward Klink again says, at the core of the mystery of the gospel is this absolute and certain claim by Jesus. Even in his death, Jesus is not a passive recipient, but the initiator, the one in complete control. This is no shepherd who who falls to thieves or wolves while trying to defend his sheep, a martyr who can save his sheep but not himself. No, death is not something this shepherd might face. It is the very thing he must face, and willingly so. That is, what makes this shepherd and this act of shepherding so mysterious and remarkable is that death is the means by which he saves his sheep. For this shepherd does not guard the sheep from those on the outside, but from the sheep themselves. And this shepherd will not carry a wooden staff, but a wooden cross. And the food and drink these sheep receive from this shepherd is not found in a field or stream, but in his body and blood. That is why Jesus, the good shepherd, speaks of his shepherding so strongly. For Jesus is fulfilling what God promised through the prophets long ago, that I will save my flock, Ezekiel 34, 22. And this salvation is made possible only at the cross. Somebody say praise Jesus. Beloved, do you hear his voice? Then rejoice. And the proper response is submission and worship for all eternity. But that's not how all respond. Let's conclude with the continued division in verses 19 through 21. The text says, There was a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind. So I was reading this text this week. I was thinking about all of the places where a demoniac or a demon-possessed person is present in the Gospels. 
And no, I wasn't there, and no, I didn't see everyone. But it's pretty clear just in the study of Scripture that there's no demoniac or demon-possessed person that says and does the things that Jesus says and does. He's utterly unique. And so while some people say he has a demon or he's insane, why listen to him? What does that show? The utter hardness of their hearts and the blindness of their spiritual eyes. Friends, I just want us to expect that. That there are times where we will speak of Jesus, who will tell people about God's grace in our lives. And as Jeff read this morning, it's, it's foolishness to them. Don't be surprised by that. Don't be offended by that. Don't take it personally. Be faithful to scatter seed and allow God to do the thing that he does. Because every once in a while, you're going to enter into a conversation. You're going to enter into a conversation that says, tell me more about this Jesus that you speak of. Because I certainly don't think he's insane. I certainly don't think he's demon-possessed. The reality is, is that Jesus divides. And you and I, each and every day, have to choose. Who will I follow? Will I follow the shepherd? Will I follow my own desires? Will I follow the ways of the world? You have to choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Father, help us to do just that. Help each man, woman, and child with great passion and with great zeal follow you regardless of the cost. We thank you, Lord, that your sheep hear your voice. We thank you for the spirit that changes us, that causes us to be born again such that we can see ourselves as we truly are. Sinners in the hands of an angry God, as Jonathan Edwards would say, and call upon the name of the Lord in, in, in light of that reality. Would it be our heart song, both as individuals and, and as a church collectively, simply that we will follow you, Lord Jesus. You know all things. You know what's ahead of us. You will never leave us nor forsake us. So help us to simply be faithful to hearing and heeding your voice, O oh God. You have declared in this text, Lord Jesus, that all men are like sheep and they go astray, yet that you are the door and the shepherd for your sheep. Help us to be mindful of what door we're going through and who we're being led by. Pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.